You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, listeners, we're taking a week off to record and write new episodes coming at you soon. So we're releasing this old episode. This episode is particularly relevant because the coming series will reference all these reproductive histories. So uh, enjoy. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Historically, women have always had ways of limiting family size, though not always particularly effective ways. They were often able to use various methods to avoid conception or induce very early abortion. It's also important to understand that birth control was not invented in a lab by doctors or scientists, but comes to us from our collective folk culture and from centuries-old female knowledge. Essentially, women have been practicing birth control since time immemorable. Today, we're going to be focusing on mostly the 18th and 19th centuries in the United States. I'm Sarah. And I'm Elizabeth. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. The Egyptians used pessaries that I think were actually called tampons. Um, made out of balled-up linen that was soaked in essential oils for millennia, I would Mm -hmm. probably, more accurate, right? Forever. Forever. Uh, Women have relied on the rhythm method uh, so that if they could control their partner's sexual urges, which not all women had that power, um, they could organize their sexual relationship around their fertile and non-fertile days. Perhaps the most common throughout history was breastfeeding. Women are generally less fertile while they're nursing, so it was exceedingly common for women to breastfeed for at least two years. Using New England in the 18th and 19th centuries, the demographic norm was to space children one every two years. You can really see that in town birth records, Mm -hmm. which means that women were actively doing something to slow their fertility. That's not an accident, Mm -hmm. right? Mm Mm-hmm. That was a strategy. As a money economy took over more industrially developed parts of the world, the monetary value of large families decreased. The high cost of urban dwelling and the decrease of monetary contribution that children could contribute to the family economy made children cost more than they could contribute. So, of course, this wasn't the case everywhere, but we start to see a slowly spreading general trend over the last really five centuries of decreasing family size. Right. 
For the most part, as is true today, however, women remained the ones largely in control of fertility and family size. They were the ones that had that knowledge and were able to make those decisions with or without their husband's knowledge, right? After all, they were generally the ones that bore the real brunt of the consequences of conception. So women were the ones that held the wisdom of how to space their births, how to prevent conception, and how to restore menses when necessary. And as proof that birth control wasn't invented in the modern clinic, records of the earliest European and American birth control clinics of the early 20th century show that a majority of the patients who visited the clinics for the first time had previously used contraception. So this kind of knowledge was passed generationally through female channels, although sometimes sporadically. And obviously a lot of that folk knowledge has been lost. Right. So just to explain a little bit more of why we kind of keep hedging our language and talk about uh, the restoration of menses rather than referring to it as abortion, um, we should probably explain how women and and doctors in general, people in general, thought about medicine and thought about health in up until the really the mid to late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Until the mid 19th century, women's reproductive health was understood in terms of a balance of bodily fluids. This is based on um, the humoral theory of medicine, where the body is made up of the four humors, blood, yellow bile, black bile, and phlegm. Thank you. Uh, really gross. And and mm-hmm. I'm not going to go into great detail about Galenic medicine or humoral medicine, just because that, that could be its own episode. Right. I mean, people living in, you know, up until the 18th and early to mid 19th century still understood the body in a Galenic ideology of bodily balance and flow. Right. So therefore, their experience of illness was different because they perceived the body in a different way than we do today. The body was in a state of balance or unbalance. So remedies such as bleeding and purging would be practiced in order to get the individual body back into health. A blockage of the menses could be a sign of imbalance because the body was not purging itself on its monthly schedule. And the backup of menstrual blood could lead to ailments in other areas of the body. In this sense, it's easier to understand why 18th century patients and doctors might speak of, say, breast milk escaping through the menses or urine escaping through the saliva. So orifices were just points where the body could expel these uh, excess matters or, or humors. Right, and keep the body in balance. Right. So sickness was caused by blockages or imbalances of those fluids in the body. And it was important to put those things back into balance by bringing on vomiting or bleeding or peeing or voiding the bowels. So when women stopped getting their periods before menopause, obviously, this was understood as an imbalance. The fetus was simply not considered. It was not part of the equation until quickening or when the fetus began to move in the womb. This meant that a pregnancy was considered more of a blockage of menses until somewhere around 15 or 20 weeks gestation. So anywhere until six months almost. Right, right. And and the the idea of quickening comes really from medieval times or even earlier. Um, and the idea of quickening happened when the fetus was endowed with the soul. Now, by the 18th century, quickening... Uh, was more understood as just the point when the fetus became more than an inanimate object. At this point, a woman could be certain of her pregnancy because she could now feel the fetus moving. 
And it's tricky for the modern scholar to assume that people in the 18th and the 19th century, and obviously earlier, thought that an obstructed menses was in fact a pregnancy. There was no definitive method for verifying pregnancy until 1926 when Cecil Vogue created the rabbit test, and it wasn't until the 1960s that the test was refined and could produce accurate results. So pregnancy wasn't an absolute certainty until the woman felt the quickening or the movement of the fetus. And this put the domain of pregnancy specifically in how women experienced their bodies. Um, The large, hard stomachs of the dropsical or worm-infested or malnourished could look very much like the stomach of a pregnant woman. And so when a woman didn't have her monthly menses and didn't feel the quickening, it could be attributed to rheumatism, consumption, pleurisy, intestinal worms, or a host of other really fun ailments, (laughs) (laughs) attributing to an unnatural stoppage of the menses. In order to get the body back to a healthy, balanced state, a resumption of the menses was required. So women regularly took herbal remedies or patent medicines, later on took patent medicines, that were designed to remove the blockage and restore the menses that were called amenagogues. During the 18th and 19th century in America, the amenagogue, or recipe to restore menses, most commonly mentioned, uh, was European savin, or the American juniper or red cedar plant. Aloe, rue, pennyroyal, tansy, mint, lavender, ginger, and many other abortifacient herbs were also recorded. Seneca snake root became a commodity for its aminagogic benefits and was harvested in the South and shipped to Philadelphia, where it was sold by Benjamin Franklin and others in the 1740s. Interesting. Most of these herbs were dried and steeped to make tea or ground up into powder form. Starting in the middle of the 18th century, commercial aminagogues were sold as Hooper's female pills, Dr. Ryan's worm-destroying sugar plums, quote, highly serviceable to the female sex, (laughs) and other such marketable names. Health manuals written in English listed aminagogues specifically as a means to restore or unblock the menses. German-language health manuals from Pennsylvania, printed between 1762 and 1778, listed the same aminagogues for restoring the menses, but these identical recipes could also, quote, expel dead fruit. Midwifery manuals later in the century from Pennsylvania gave the same recipes in expelling the fetus, quote, be it alive or dead. Common books listing aminagogues could easily be found during the 18th and 19th century. William Buchan's Domestic Medicine, first published in 1792, listed several ways a missed menstrual period could be restored. He also listed numerous causes of abortion later in the book. Samuel K. Jennings' book, The Married Lady's Companion, had its second printing in 1808 and listed several aminagogic abortifacients. In 1810, Joseph Brevitt's The Female Medical Repository was published in Baltimore and listed many aminagogues. After cataloging multiple external causes of abortion, such as falls and jumping, he added an asterisk and a footnote to the American edition, deploring the, quote, horrid depravity of human weakness to procure abortion by these means. And the fact that he had to make this aside stresses the fact that women were using these books to induce abortion. For example, the diary of 18th century midwife Martha Ballard Notes providing a young woman named Jenny Cool a concoction of, quote, particular herbs to cure an obstruction of her menses. And the historian Leslie Regan writes, quote, This age-old idea underpinned the practice of abortion in America. The legal acceptance of induced miscarriages before quickening 
tacitly assumed that women had a basic right to bodily integrity. So I think this is kind of the key point that we're trying to make here is that this was seen as the purview of women and women only. This wasn't really a medical or moral issue. It was something that women controlled and that women did. Well, in the experience of women and their bodies. Right. You know, so before feeling a quickening, you know, they might just feel... I don't know, for lack of a better word, constipated. Right. You know, like it's it's the it's their own experience of, of, right. of how they were feeling. Especially because in the beginning of a pregnancy, you're often quite sick. Mm-hmm. And so you might just interpret that as being sick. Right. right. And wanting to bring about health again rather than, well, I'm sick because I am pregnant, which is how we, because of such early testing, experience it today. Right. But not always. Not always, I mean, right. you know, many people do miss that they're pregnant Absolutely. and they think they're sick. Right. So we learn a lot about early American ideas about abortion or restoring the menses from printed books, pamphlets, and, and the advertisements for these abortifacients. Um, and we also glean a lot of information about, um, about birth control and abortion from early court records. So the 1745 Connecticut case of Rex versus Hollowell provides a rare and well-documented look at abortion in New England. In this case, Sarah Grosvenor became pregnant by her lover, Amasa Sessions, in 1742. They were both children of well-to-do families in the town of Pomfret and needed to cover up their illicit affair. Sessions procured an abortifacient potion from the self-proclaimed practitioner of physic, John Hallowell. Later that month, Sarah Grosvenor admitted to her younger sister that she was pregnant but had been taking the trade to remove it. The trade was a commonly used word for an abortifacient in New England, and the fact that Sarah and her sister understood what this word meant sheds light on the commonality of abortion in this era. Right. After taking multiple doses of the potion, Sarah believed she was still pregnant and did not want to take any more as she thought it an evil. John Hollowell convinced her that she would die if she did not restore her natural balance of humors and that the fetus most certainly was dead. She agreed to let Hollowell deliver her, but told him to stop if he detected any sign of life in the fetus. And so I'll just I'll just pause for a second here and kind of point out that, you know, okay, so this is 1742. This is the mid-18th century. We see ideas in this court record, ideas of kind of quickening, changing, right? right. So, so Sarah... Um, she's, she's trying to return her menses, but it seems that she, she does have an inkling that she is pregnant, right? right? But she obviously hasn't felt the quickening because she wants Hollowell to stop if he detects any sign of life in the fetus. So you see some, there's a lot there. I mean, there's, she sort of is, believes that she's pregnant, even though she hasn't reached that traditional point of quickening Mm -hmm. yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but she still needs to resume her natural balance of humors. And I think it's really interesting that it's him that says that. Like, you're going to get sick. So that could be, we could interpret that as him genuinely caring for her and wanting her to be well. Or wanting to be rid of this potentially um, really serious problem that they might have on their hands right. this pregnancy. Right. It, or, or even, you know, again, I mean, this is kind of reading into it. But or even knowing that... The fetus is dead. Right. So she has to expel this right. or she because is she's been going taking to get this, sick. this right. medicine. Right. 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 So lots of lots of stuff going on. Yeah. Here. Uh, so court testimony by 
Zerfia, which uh, Zerfia Grossvener, Zerfia, great, great name, yeah, Zerfia Grossvener, I'm gonna say great name there. Court testimony by Zerfia Grossvener, which is an awesome name, yes, it is, states that Hallowell took an quote instrument from his bag and inserted it inside Sarah. The record is unclear on what type of instrument he used. The curette, a medical instrument used to induce abortion, was invented in France in 1723. Uh, it is possible that Hallowell used a curette in this instance, but he also could have used any number of implements, such as a sharpened piece of slippery elm. And I guess I should point out, curette isn't only used to induce abortion. I mean, like, they use that nowadays to break your water if you're, right, you know, moving along slowly. And again, he... He believed that the fetus was deceased and would make her sick, right? So maybe that's how he interpreted that. Absolutely, yeah. So the ensuing graphic testimony accused Hallowell of trying to, quote, take the child away through force, which triggered Sarah to faint and caused Hallowell to leave town. Two days later, Sarah delivered a stillborn infant. Ten days later, Sarah became sick with convulsions and fever and died shortly thereafter. So obviously from infection. Infection, yeah. Two and a half years after Sarah's death, rumors spread about a murderous abortion and two county magistrates began the investigation. So that's really important to, to notice that this investigation or these court records come to us two and a half years after the actual right. incident happened. Yeah. The trial initially went forward, charging all parties in the murder of Sarah Grosvenor, but failed on technical grounds. In a separate trial in 1747, John Hallowell was convicted of the high-handed misdemeanor of attempting to destroy both Sarah Grosvenor's health and the fruit of her womb. And it would seem here that the courts were more concerned for Sarah Grosvenor and her murder as opposed to her fetus. Hallowell was sentenced to 29 lashes and two hours of public humiliation at the town gallows. There was no statute law on abortion in either America or England at the time. It also is important to point out that this case would never have come you know, to our attention or to anybody's attention um, had Sarah not died. Rex v. Hollowell allows us to explore the use of abortifacients. This case does not explicitly say what kind of physic or potion Sarah took, just that it was in powder form. It is evident from the court documents that the individuals involved with the case were familiar with abortifacients, even if they were unsure of how to make them or how they worked. Um, in another court case in 1812, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled in Commonwealth v. Bangs that an abortion before quickening was not a crime. Okay, so important to point out we're yeah. still... We're still showing that the, the act of quickening or the embodiment of the woman, the woman feeling her own body of quickening, is the point in which there, right. there is a viable fetus. Um, in this case, Isaiah Bangs prepared and administered an abortifacient potion to a woman. He was freed by the justices because it could not be proven that the woman was quick and with child at the time. Commonwealth v. Bangs remained the ruling precedent in abortion cases in the United States for the next 60 years. Yeah, Really, really important point there. This began to change in the early to mid-19th century when lawmakers began to make the sale of abortifacients illegal. Women, however, continued to grow their own herbs like pennyroyal, tansy, and rue and concoct their own remedies. It was not uncommon for midwives to be skilled in preventing pregnancy alongside their skills in caring for laboring women. And just an example from pop culture today, if anyone has seen um, the PBS series Mercy Street, this was something that slaves had a lot of knowledge in as well. And that comes with its 
own host of issues that would make for yet another really fascinating episode. But in the show, make a really long story short, there's a, a slave named Aurelia Johnson who's been raped by a white man and believes herself to be pregnant and wants to end the pregnancy, essentially. She goes to another enslaved woman named Belinda Gibson who gives her a um, concoction of pennyroyal. And this raises really interesting points because enslaved women also had all of these same remedies, right? This was not something that was limited to white women's knowledge, right? This was also something that enslaved women knew and had a tradition of. But they were under increased pressure to not use them because babies benefited their masters, right? A baby increased a master's wealth. Masters were constantly concerned that their slave women were going behind their backs, hiding and using methods to stop pregnancies, specifically in the South, cotton root, which would have been widely, widely available. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was always a concern that that could be going on under the master's nose without his knowledge. Mm -hmm. The medical profession was becoming progressively more specialized and self-regulated during this time. Physicians increasingly attempted to separate themselves from lay healers and folk doctors by taking on the name regulars. These doctors tended to be graduates of prestigious medical schools or those that practiced with them. Regulars regarded their advancing position as important as the field of law or theology, and they were intensely opposed to what they considered quack medicine. As long as women maintained control over this aspect of their lives, doctors had less professional power. So they, in other words, they did not have a real corner on the medical market as long as women maintained this control over their reproductive health. Right. In addition to fighting for a level of prestige, regulars were also concerned with the number of irregulars or quacks that were cutting into their livelihoods. So this was also about money. Um, One study from Rochester, New York, during the mid-19th century found that many physicians had to work in additional areas of employment in order to earn a respectable living. So in an attempt to protect their medical ideals and sources of revenue, regulars began pressing for increased legislation pertaining to medical practice. As a result, between the years of 1821 and 1841, 10 of the 26 states in the Union enacted statutes in regards to abortion. Connecticut became the first state to enact a law specifically pertaining to abortion in 1821. Between Section 13 pertaining to intent to kill or rob and Section 15 dealing with the secret delivery of a bastard child, Section 14 stated, Every person who shall administer to any deadly poison or other noxious and destructive substance, thereby to murder or thereby to cause or procure the miscarriage of any woman, then being quick with child, shall be thereof duly convicted. That's really important there that they say quick with child, Mm -hmm. right? right? Indicating after that certain point. Absolutely. So before that, you know, all bets are off. Right. That was a really probably flippant way to refer to abortion. But before that, it was still the the purview of women. Of the woman. By 1841, 10 states and one territory had enacted laws pertaining to abortion. In reality, these laws were unenforceable, as there were no pregnancy tests at the time. 
Four of the ten states listed their abortion laws under poisoning. Every abortion law during this period was enacted within omnibus crime and punishment bills. So meaning they were one part of, of a very large bill covering multiple things. Mm-hmm. There was also no major coverage of the enactment of these laws and revisions in either the popular press or the religious press during the time. During the 1840s, there was a surge in the volume of abortions being performed in the United States. Historian James Seymour estimates one abortion for every five or six live births occurred during this time. One reason was the increasing commercialization and advertisement of abortifacients in popular papers and magazines. The infamous Madame Restelle began her abortion practice in New York during the 1830s. She was arrested for the first time in 1841, and New York papers printed her name and occupation, giving her great publicity. By the late 1840s, Madame Restelle's abortion practice had branches in New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. Street peddlers would sell her abortifacient pills throughout neighborhoods, and they were available by mail order as well. But by no means was Madame Restelle alone. A quick look through most any paper in the 1840s would show multiple advertisements for abortion providers and abortifacients. Dr. Peter's French renovating pills were sold as a, quote, blessing to mothers. And although very mild and prompt in their operations, pregnant females should not use them as they invariably produce a miscarriage. Right. End quote. That, so. was, that kind of advertising was really common. Right. So it, don't use it because right. this <laughs> is what it's going to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The rise in sales of abortifacients may only have produced a low amount of actual abortions, yet the number of pills sold indicates that women were trying them in very high numbers and then possibly resorting to surgical means if the abortifacients didn't work. A study by a physician pharmacologist in Syracuse, New York, in the late 1860s found six out of ten different abortifacient pills he purchased to have high abortifacient properties, two of the ten to be mild laxatives and the other two were inert drugs. So women could achieve an abortion through commercial abortifacient pills if they knew where to look or were lucky or unlucky enough to happen upon the right ones. A second possible cause of the increased abortion usage during this time was a trend among white married Protestant women to utilize abortion as a means of limiting family size. The white Protestant American family had been decreasing in size since the revolution, and the 1840s saw an upsurge in deliberate family planning by middle-class women. This prompted a serious backlash by regulars and nativists. Married women who sought abortions were criticized for abandoning the self-sacrifice required of motherhood. Young single women who sought abortions had been pitied as helpless and troubled dependents, but married women seeking abortions had no excuse for their heartless depravity, as the editor of the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal stated in 1844. Dr. Horatio Storer, a leading opponent of abortion, equated a childless marriage as legalized prostitution. And this backlash was part of a larger upheaval in changing gender roles. At this time, feminism was gaining popularity with middle-class Protestant women as the abolition, temperance, voluntary motherhood, and suffrage movements gained momentum. Although feminist groups avoided or condemned abortion during this time, feminists were still seen as a threat to the status quo and mounting gender role evolution. The mid-19th century was also a time of increased immigration, which spurred nativist sentiments. As native-born Protestant birth rates were declining, Catholic immigrant population numbers were on the rise. And this led to grave fears of the white race suicide or the demographic failure of the American family. 
Native Protestants feared that Catholic immigrant populations would surpass them and the Puritan bloodline of 76 would be diminished. This argument also marked the beginning of the eugenics movement as native-born Americans worried that their good stock would be overrun by aliens. The fact that white native-born women were procuring abortions doubled eugenicists' anxiety. Right, and if I can just jump in here for one second, this is there's a really interesting thing happening with um, this episode and another episode that we're working on right now about unwanted immigrants. Mm. And this is happening at the same time as a crackdown on quote-unquote defective or degenerate, disabled um, immigrants, particularly from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, arriving at Ellis Island. And it's fueled by the same concerns. Mm-hmm. So you have kind of the, um, the, the dual concerns here over white women not having as many children and all of these defective immigrants coming and reproducing like rabbits. Mm-hmm. That's the concern that they have, that they're mm-hmm. going to um, water down the, um, the good American healthy white uh, population with their defective genes. Right, right. Right, so, I mean, there's some serious, heavy cultural stuff going on during, right. yeah. during this, this mid-19th century yeah. period. So the American Medical Association, or the AMA, formed in 1847 as a professional nationwide organization for physicians. So this group of regulars continued with increased fervor the push for enacting more abortion and general medical legislation. Horatio Storer, uh, one of the most outspoken opponents of abortion, spearheaded the AMA crusade in 1857 against criminal abortion. The campaign gained momentum among regulars across the country and put enormous pressure on lawmakers to enact medical and abortion legislation. It should be noted that not all physicians were on board or all regulars were on board. One Boston physician stated anonymously that Storer, quote, seems to have thrown out of consideration the life of the mother, making that of the unborn child appear of far more consequence, even should the mother have a dozen dependent on her for their daily bread, end quote. So as this quote suggests, not all regulars viewed abortion in the hard and fast lines that the outspoken majority did. It's really interesting echoes to the same arguments that people make today, absolutely, right? Absolutely, absolutely. It just shows has not changed. No. Yeah. So the AMA set out to influence legislation and public opinion. Regulars bemoaned the country's general demoralization as attributed to the public's ignorance on quickening. Basically saying, oh, the public still believes in this quickening nonsense, right? right? Um, And doctors performing abortions to make money and retain patients in the lax laws against abortion. The AMA determined to deconstruct the prevalent quickening ideal among the general populace by lecturing their patients and producing books and manuals debunking the quickening doctrine. Uh, They largely succeeded, and by 1868, 30 of the 37 states in the Union had abortion laws, and the common discourse on abortion was changing. Only three of the state laws deemed abortion after quickening a crime. Almost all of these laws held the women receiving the abortion liable as well as a practitioner. Between the years of 1841 and 1868, the country made a dramatic change from one that listened to women's perception of their bodies in relation to their pregnancy and fetal movement to one that specifically rejected that concept and insisted all pregnancies be carried to term. 
The legislation pushed by regulars continued, and by 1880, every state in the Union, except for Kentucky, which is interesting, it is odd, yeah. um, had laws making abortion illegal at any stage except when deemed necessary for the woman's health by a respected physician. Most laws also made the advertisement of abortion services or abortifacients illegal. Specifically, the Comstock Law of 1873 drastically increased the regulation of advertising, quote-unquote, women's services. Increased regulations... Oh, I'm going to just pause to say, we're going to circle back to Comstock um, in a couple minutes. Sarah's favorite person. Oh, yes. I love him so much. (laughs) Increased regulations and a change in public perception also altered the demographics of who was obtaining abortions. They decreased among native-born Protestant women, and again became more common among young, single women, and poor immigrants. The decrease of white Protestant women receiving abortions also coincided with an increased availability of contraceptives. Abortions were by no means eliminated as they were gradually pushed underground. At a time of increased scientific knowledge and ability to make abortions safer for women, physicians were refusing to perform them making illegal abortion increasingly more dangerous for women who needed them. And there are a series of, in the late 1800s, sensationalized stories about women who die because their evil, immoral boyfriends are forcing them to have these illegal abortions, these underground abortions, and then they become these huge headline trials, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So there's... This is not something that people are not aware of. Right. This, no, is, this is very much headline this is front news. front page yeah. stuff. As abortions were being pushed underground with increasing regularity, discourse on the matter gained prominence. Physicians still complained about the public's acceptance of abortion before quickening, and they increasingly used more shocking vocabulary and stories to repulse the public. By the 1870s, professional and popular journals were filled with the abortion issue. The New York Times continually ran salacious stories highlighting the evil of the age. So like we said, this is front page right. news, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, in 1888, the Chicago Times ran a month-long undercover story charging that abortion was widely available in the nation's second largest city, despite a strict Illinois state law. Hmm. The journalists found that many physicians and midwives would perform abortions, and if they did not, most were willing to refer the undercover journalist to someone that did. Dr. George M. Chamberlain, one of Chicago's most prestigious doctors, member of the AMA and the Illinois State Medical Society, agreed to perform an abortion on one undercover journalist. Dr. Milton Jay, dean of the Bennett Medical College, also agreed to perform one. The paper named 48 physicians who agreed to help one undercover journalist attain an abortion. 34 agreed to do it themselves. 12 referred her to another doctor who would perform an abortion. One referred her to a midwife, and one sold her an abortifacient drug and sent her to another doctor. 32 of the 48 doctors were regulars. Several belonged to the AMA. Many others belonged to the local medical society. Wow. Now, and one, one point about this, this, this journalist, she actually went in and, like, wore a fake ring, right? So she's going in as, like, a white, middle-class wife asking right. for an abortion. Okay, so she, she, she's, she's, she's trying to talk to these doctors or these regulars on kind of, like, a, a, an equal class footing. Right, Okay. Yeah. Um, and it's not as though she's going in unmarried, like, 
She's a promiscuous young woman who's gotten herself in trouble and needs to face the punishment or the con- the natural consequences of her actions. Instead, right. this is a, a a young married woman who res- she needs a respectable abortion. Right, right, right. So, so overall, the story it also highlighted the conflicting relationship that many regulars had with abortion. Um, showed that respectable physicians with close ties to respectable ladies were frequently performing abortions and exposed the hypocrisy of the upper classes and their condemnation of the lower classes and abortion. The undercover journalist commented on her surprise that it was married society women more than poor shop girls and immigrants who were procuring these abortions. The Chicago expose also went into the poorer neighborhoods where most obstetrics were performed by midwives. The paper published the names of 16 midwives who agreed to perform an abortion or who would refer the undercover journalist to someone that would. Some of the midwives that refused offered to keep the pregnant girl with them until she delivered and would aid her in finding a foundling house for the baby. I think that was fairly common in in cities, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. I mean, my right now on my dissertation, I'm working on the Florence Crittenden homes, which were essentially places where women could go and and have their baby. Although um, they were against um, adopting the baby out, they actually wanted to keep the baby with the mother as kind of a form mm. of of reform for the mother. But okay. yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, but I mean, as far as midwives, yeah, I mean that, like you said earlier, you know, the, they were like the the do all for women's right. health. Yeah. You know, yeah. like let's let's keep you from getting pregnant if you want to keep from getting pregnant. I'll help you deliver the baby. Right. I'll help you afterwards. Right. You know? Yeah. We need we need more of that now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so let's get back to talking about midwives a little bit. Um it, you know, it's also important to note that regulars also kind of included midwives in, in this idea of quackery or, yes. or you know, so so they really wanted to crack down on the use of midwives. Right. Um, which, you know, immigrant uh, working class, African-American women used predominantly because, number one, these these midwives were kind of part of their community right. and they were more affordable. And they did offer all of these services that, you know, a regular doctor wouldn't offer. You know, a midwife would come and help you once the baby was born, help you get your laundry done, you know. So so these women were really kind of part of, of, of the community. So, again, we see kind of this crackdown on... Um, non-middle-class, non-white um, culture in a way. Absolutely. Wrapped up in this abortion issue. And so Chicago specialist in obstetrics, one increased state supervision of midwives in 1896 and 1908 and in 1915 by identifying midwives as abortionists. But it's important to point out in 1917, a study at the Washington University Dispensary in St. Louis found that physicians and midwives attributed an equal amount to the illegal abortions they tracked. Hmm. In a New York study of 111 convictions for illegal abortions between 1925 and 1950, investigators found that midwives were responsible for 22.5% of the cases and physicians for 27.9%. So although these numbers do not give definitive results for rural and urban populations, it's a good indication that abortions were being performed by doctors and midwives in equal numbers. Right. Most of the available numbers that we have on abortions are from deaths and criminal cases or from hospitals admitting women with complications from illegal abortions. It's unknown how many abortions were executed safely and without comment. Most discourse on abortion happened in private spaces between families and among networks of females. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. This podcast was produced by the Historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Abel Earls. 
You can find show notes and further reading as well as the archive for the History Buffs podcast at digpodcast.org. Thanks for listening. And there was a lot of jokes in the early modern or in early modern Europe um, about sausages, um, comparing the way that sausages are wrapped in animal casings <laughs> to condoms, which I think is hilarious. I'll never look at sausage the same way again. <laughs> um, like this one, which I think is great. Well, hurry up. In you go. Sausage. Nice and tight. The path is narrow. Don't pray tell. Don't you love this illustrious and rich blood sausage? How tre- how the treacherous one stings. It must be loaded with spices. Just correct. I know. <laughs> um, until somewhere around 15 or 20 me- meeks. <laughs> During the 18th and 19th century in America, the Amenagog... The Amenagog... Amenagog? Amenagog. Yep. Amenagog. Um, oh my god. <laughs> Amen, amen, say it again. Amenagog. Amenagog. Cool, dude. Okay, how do I stop this mother...
This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. You can find show notes and further reading at digpodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest at dig underscore history and on Facebook at dig podcast. Thanks for listening. Women of every color can be found in the streets. I love how you say Italians. Why? What did I say? Italian. I don't know. I can't do the Buffalo thing. <laughs> Italians. Did you hear it? No. Okay. Sorry. Why? How do you say it? Italians. I don't know. I, I'm sure if I tried to say it now, I'd say it all weird. Yeah, I know. Now I'm gonna. At least you don't say Italian, right? Some Italian dressing. All right. <laughs> the brothel had quote rosewood furniture. Should we? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think so. Some, some zucchini bread. <laughs>